0: Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org.
1: It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving break. Uh, Perhaps you're back at work on this Monday. How much snow is on the ground in your part of the state? Well, just a few minutes, we'll be joined by state climatologist Justin Glisson. Uh, he'll give us his view on what we can expect this winter as we mark the first blanket of snow across the state this weekend. Also, an update on proposed Midwest carbon pipelines from Jared Strong of Iowa Capital Dispatch. And toward the end of an hour, an Iowa veteran of the Vietnam War shares his memories with IPR's Danny Gere. But first, Let's go back a few months to recall the six-week fetal heartbeat abortion ban that was passed in the summer. It's a statewide measure that bans abortion after doctors detect cardiac activity in the embryo. Uh, That's at about six weeks into a pregnancy. It was passed, if you remember, by the Iowa legislature, uh, controlled by Republicans, in a one-day special session signed into law by Governor Kim Reynolds in July. It was quickly challenged by opponents. Uh, A Polk County judge issued an injunction on the law blocking it from going into effect until the legal challenge is settled. So that means abortion, still legal in Iowa, up to 20 weeks of pregnancy. Nevertheless, earlier this month, Iowa's top medical board began the rulemaking process to establish guidance and enforcement of this pending six-week abortion ban. Joining us now, Michaela Ram, healthcare reporter with the Des Moines Register. Hi, Michaela. Hi, Ben. There's a lot to unpack here. Let's start with this question. If the abortion ban is temporarily blocked, why is the Iowa Board of Medicine moving forward?
2: We got some insight from that from the attorney general's office, basically, um, per their understanding of the injunction from uh, Polk County District Judge. um, Even though enforcement of that law is temporarily blocked, The portion of the law that still directs the Board of Medicine to craft rules is still in effect. So they were still obliged by that law to craft those rules and get that process in motion for whenever we find the end result from this court battle.
1: Mm -hmm. We don't talk about the Iowa Board of Medicine every day. What is it? Who sits on it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Well, it's Iowa's top medical board. Um, It's made up of physicians and other professionals who really oversee all of Iowa's physician profession. Um, And they really dole out enforcement um, when Iowa's physicians act badly. And they also establish rules for laws like this to help physicians understand how they can comply with these types of rules.
1: Okay, so we have are lawmakers that craft the law uh, and, in this case, pass the law. So this is really getting down into the nuts and bolts, so to speak, uh, in, in the rulemaking process. Uh, tell us more about these administrative rules uh, and what this now, this step, tells us about how this law could play out if it clears the courts.
2: Yeah, this really answers long-awaited questions that we've had about how this will play out for physicians. Um, a lot of physicians, you know, wanted a lot of clair- this clarity for a long time. And so this was the first time that we really got a sense of how this will play out. Um, and these administrative rules specifically show how physicians can comply with the exceptions to this fetal heartbeat law. Um, and to remind the the listeners, uh, there are exceptions to the law in cases of rape, uh, incest, Fatal fetal abnormalities and to preserve the life of the pregnant individual in cases of a medical emergency. So, this answers questions of how they were to comply with these types of rules. Um, So, specifically for cases of rape, uh, the administrative rules dictate that the physician must ask some questions and gather some information from the patient if they want to seek an abortion in a case of rape. Um, And that includes asking when that sex act occurred and and when that person might have become pregnant and whether that rape was reported to an official like law enforcement or a public health agency.
1: Mm -hmm. We have also the exceptions there of fetal abnormality. Do we know now better what uh, would be sufficient uh, as an abnormality to qualify as an exception under this law?
2: So it doesn't dictate specifically what types of conditions would be allowed under a you know, definition of a fetal abnormality. However, physicians are required to really uh, sign a certificate attesting that this abnormality, whatever this condition may be, is incompatible to life to the physician's best medical judgment. Um, you know, and they're supposed to document their support of that diagnosis. And that includes things like what tests and procedures that they performed in order to diagnose this abnormality and to describe why it would be incompatible with life. And um, the attorney general's official that was there at the board of medicine meeting really said that this is to help the physician, you know, if they are not the same physician that is performing the abortion to really have that documentation to know and to certify that, that this is a fatal abnormality.
1: Mm -hmm. What do the proposed rules say about penalties for doctors who um, are, are accused of not abiding by the law?
2: It really didn't answer any clear questions. Um, it did state that, you know, physicians that do not comply with the proposed requirements, you know, would constitute grounds for discipline. Um, There is little discussion among board members about what that discipline would look like. Um, So we don't have clear understanding of discipline related to the abortion law. But existing administrative rules do offer some insight on the types of discipline that the Board of Medicine can dole out. Um, So that includes things like revoking or suspending a physician license or imposing civil fines um, in the worst cases.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, But any talk of uh, criminal penalties...
2: No criminal penalties would be included as part of these administrative rules. The uh, attorney general's uh, official made it very clear that the Board of Medicine is the enforcing body of this law. And so, you know, because they can't impose criminal or civil penalties, there would be no criminal um, repercussions for physicians as part of this law.
1: Mm-hmm. You've spoken to a number of proponents and critics of this law. What do they say about the proposed requirements?
2: So I spoke with uh, Christy Judkins, who is with the Iowa Right to Life. You know, her group was really in support of this law and was really uh, lobbying hard for this law. And, you know, she said that she supported these rules. She thought that this really got to the heart of the law as, you know, was directed with pro, uh, you know, individuals who were in support of uh, abortion restrictions. Um, she did raise some concerns that she thought that there should be better documentation or at least better uh, requirements to ensure that, you know, women or children who are attesting to rape and incest and, and seeking abortion were um, being truthful. Um, but overall, she said that she was happy with the ways that these rules were and thought that the Board of Medicine, you know, had the best judgment in order to enforce that. But really, for the most part, there were mostly uh, opponents to this law who attended the Board of Medicine meeting. Um, you know, they raised quite a few concerns about uh, these administrative rules. Um, and I think they continue to raise concerns about the impact of this abortion law, should it go into effect?
1: hmm. Now, in a related topic um, that you've also covered for the register, Iowa's Republican-controlled legislature has also reshaped the program that provides family planning services specifically to low- and moderate-income Iowans. And this is a change, if we remind ourselves in our news, prohibiting family planning funding from going to Planned Parenthood and other clinics that provide abortions. Now, Michaela, you looked into the ramifications for patients when state and federal policies undercut abortion providers like Planned Parenthood. What did you find out?
2: Yeah. So I first, um, you know, for those who might not be familiar, this law first passed in 2017 to block abortion providers. Um, and we recently got some state data, you know, some years down the road, um, showing that participation in the program is way down. Um, you know, the number of individuals who are getting things like birth control pills or long-acting contraceptives is down 83% since 2017. Um, So getting that data recently, I I really wanted to dig into why, what might be driving that. Um, And I'm hearing a a couple of different things. You know, the state says that um, the expansion of Medicaid under the pandemic public health emergency, which allowed people to keep Medicaid coverage, really kind of helped people get Medicaid uh, eligibility and, and get uh, birth control pills and, and things of that nature through that. Um, however, researchers I talked to said that participation in this program had been dropping way before the pandemic. Um, and really, the main driver is eliminating these trusted and preferred providers like Planned Parenthood from programs like this who are known for their reproductive health services.
1: Mm-hmm. but but the state has hundreds of providers that state leaders say participate in the the state funded uh, family planning
2: Yes, there are hundreds participating however, um, we're only seeing about a couple dozen providers offer services under this program um, and I wasn't able to gain clear insight as to why that was you know was that because there are less people participating in the program or are providers not? Um, aware of this program. Um, I spoke with uh, Allison Smith, the Executive Director of the Family Planning Council of Iowa, and she did raise concerns about the fact that providers might just not be aware of this program or might not have the knowledge or resources to enroll patients in this program. Mm
1: -hmm. In the final minute or so, what has been the result for Planned Parenthood clinics across the state?
2: We saw uh, immediate impacts from them back in uh, 2018. They closed four Planned Parenthood clinics across the state, which really displaced hundreds, if not thousands, of patients from their uh, regular healthcare care provider. Um, and we're still seeing some trickling impacts of that, but really it just reduced the footprint of Planned Parenthood in the state um, and limited uh, their ability to open in-person clinics. Now, they they do do a lot of telehealth across the state, but um, you know the loss of those clinics in those cities was really impactful, especially for those patients who relied on them.
1: Mm-hmm. Going forward, quickly, Michaela, what will you be watching? What should we be watching?
2: Well, I am going to be watching the uh, and disenrollment from Medicaid coverage. You know, if state officials, you know, as they say, um, people really rely on these kind of services through Medicaid coverage. Well, they're gonna be losing that soon with uh, this unwinding period. So I'll be watching to see where people land. You know, will they continue to have health insurance? Will they be able to access service like this through state programs? Um, State officials say that they plan to promote programs like this a little bit better, especially in light of Medicaid disenrollment, but we'll have to watch and see whether people can jump that gap.
1: Michaela Ram is health reporter with the Des Moines Register. Michaela, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. And we'll be back in just a moment with more of River to River from IPR News.
0: Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org.
3: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of
0: Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
1: It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Iowa saw its first blanket of snow this weekend. How much did you get? Well, we had snow primarily from was it, Saturday evening through midday yesterday, tapering off by early yesterday afternoon for most parts of the state. Let's check in with Justin Glisson, state climatologist of Iowa. Hi, Justin.
0: Hi, Ben. Good to be with you.
1: Good to be with you. Uh, Tell us more about the range of snow we saw across the state this weekend.
0: Yeah, so typically when we get into the travel season with Thanksgiving and Christmas, we always see these transient systems move through. So we did see these gentle uh, snowfall across the state, the pretty snow, fluffy snow. We had two pockets of anywhere from three to four inches in South Central Iowa, and then a pocket of higher totals between Cedar Rapids and Davenport. But overall, most stations across the state saw at least some flakes on the ground. If you look at the statewide average, just under two inches. Now, we always mentioned the amount of moisture you get out of it, given that we're in the 178th consecutive week of at least D1 moderate drought somewhere in the state. Not a lot of moisture out of this snowpack, about two-tenths of an inch, if you look at an average.
1: Mm-hmm. Right, and I'm looking at the latest U.S. drought monitor for the state, and we still have, well, it's a good portion of the state, at least a third, most of it in, in eastern Iowa, as D3 extreme drought, right?
0: Yes, that nasty red color on that the U.S. drought monitor depiction D0 to D4, abnormally dry conditions are D0, that yellow. We see some yellow in northwestern Iowa where if you go back to the beginning of the drought, the driest part of the state with precipitation deficits approaching 25 inches, you have some stations over the last three years that have missed out on a year's worth of precipitation. So that just gives you an idea of how particularly dry conditions are. And you look at eastern Iowa where we do see precipitation deficits on the order of uh, 8, 10, 12 inches below average. Definitely with the warmer temperatures that we had uh, during fall and the vegetative demand of the crop, row uh, row crops, corn and beans, soil profiles are near depleted. So any moisture that we can get into the ground before winter uh, freeze up will be excellent, but we are uh, running on a near empty tank in parts of the state.
1: Mm -hmm. Justin talk more about precipitation of course we would love it um, this being a a drought several years of drought but does it matter whether that comes in frozen or snow form or ice or or rain
0: we would like to see it as liquid or rain a gentle rainfall if you remember back last year early December we had widespread rainfalls that put some moisture in the tank having moisture in those profiles. It helps the soil profiles freeze slower but they also don't freeze as deep so as we get into spring thaw we do have infiltration of any melting snowpack now if you're working with dry soils they will dry uh, they will freeze faster and deeper and hence if you get a snowpack on the ground when you start to melt that off, depending on how deep the, freeze, uh, the frost level is, you're not going to get more infiltration into the soils. Where you'll see more infiltration is towards the uh, stream flows, which are particularly low as well, given drought conditions.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and I imagine it depends on when springtime comes, how fast we warm up, um, how slowly the ground or how well the ground can warm to soak up more of that moisture?
0: absolutely you think of back to march of 2019 the bomb cyclone that came across the midwest we had a good snowpack across the entire state but our soils were frozen because of of, uh, a deep freeze a lot of runoff and you get into flooding events when you have uh, uh, soils that are not able to infiltrate that moisture so looking at the potential for the El Nino we're in a moderate to strong El Nino phase right now and moving into winter and it's projected to hang around into early 2024 we typically see warmer temperatures across the upper Midwest so with those warmer temperatures there is a potential there for soil profiles not freezing as deep And That would be excellent news given any kind of precipitation that we get through uh, December, January, February.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: This is an El Nino year, this uh, regular natural climate phenomenon. Tell us more about it. Remind us what that means since we've just moved into this this part of a regular climate cycle.
0: Yes, so El Nino is part of what we call the El Nino Southern Oscillation. This is a multi-decadal or a long-term climate driver that impacts the Pacific. So the El Nino phase, the La Nina phase, the the warm and cold phases work generally on a two to seven year cycle. Now we are coming out of three consecutive years of La Nina winters, which we'd only seen two other events like that since 1950. So definitely anomalous behavior over the last three years. And that's partially due or partially a function of the drought conditions that we see currently. Now, we've shifted into the warm phase of El Nino, or El Nino, which is the warm phase, meaning warmer sea surface temperatures in the eastern Pacific that fire thunderstorms. And when these thunderstorms fire, they affect the larger scale weather pattern across the United States. We call it a teleconnection. But what happens is generally the polar jet stream stays north, and it helps to keep the colder Arctic air further north. The subtropical jets remains basically flat across the southern states, the Sunbelt and the Gulf states, that's where you see a higher propensity for more precipitation. Iowa just happens to be right in the middle of that interface. But if we look historically at El Ninos, moderate to strong El Ninos, we see less snowfall in the events that we've seen recently. But that doesn't mean we don't see precipitation. We actually have seen more precipitation, specifically later in the season, in late January and February. Uh, So with those warmer temperatures and the potential for wetter conditions uh, towards late winter and early spring, I am somewhat optimistic that we can get some moisture in the tank uh, for the next growing season, but also to help at least put a chip in these uh, these longer-term precipitation deficits.
1: But what you're saying, in summary, is that that precipitation likely to come toward the back end of the winter rather than now the front end?
0: Yeah. If we look at historically uh, strong El Ninos, we see February being a very active month. Uh, we had Active months uh, before in winter time. Uh, but with the temperature gradient that we see set up with the El Nino phase, uh, there is a, a, a higher probability of seeing these low pressure systems, these larger scale low pressure systems that breed, bring widespread uh, rainfall, snowfall, wintering mix uh, across the upper Midwest. And if we look at those last three events that we've had, winter has been on the wetter side.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: You mentioned the jet stream staying to the north. Um, What would that say about our our temperatures? I mean, we've had some significant polar vortexes in North America in in recent years. Uh, Some, was it last year, even reaching way down to Texas for a good long time.
0: Excellent point. So we can still see those polar air outbreaks. And I would put my money on seeing those polar air outbreaks. But overall, if you look at the average over the months, we should should stay above average. But the Arctic oscillation is another climate driver, particularly in wintertime, that's able to be forecasted out a week, two, three weeks. And it could give us an idea of a shift in that polar vortex. So when you have events that happen that produce a wobble, in the polar jet stream, that's where you can see those Arctic air outbreaks, but those are difficult to forecast. Uh, we can generally get those uh, one to two weeks out.
1: Am I understanding you correctly, Justin, that just as we have more extreme weather of all sorts, wet dry, these polar vortexes are wilder. Would that be a good way uh, generally speaking to 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 uh, to see it
0: absolutely i would I would say that our you mentioned aptly that our extremes are becoming more extreme all flavors, wet, dry, warm, and cold. Well, with the climate generally warming, more water vapor availability in the atmosphere because of a warming environment, you see these swings back, the pendulum swings back and forth relatively fast. So the proxy year that I use is 2018. Record wetness in 151 years of current records across the northern third of the state Uh, D3 conditions across southeastern Iowa, you'd only need to move four counties north or south to be in one extreme or another historic extreme. So definitely, even as winters are the fastest warming season for much of the United States, uh, we're still seeing colder air outbreaks because of the extreme nature.
1: Okay, let's uh, turn our focus a little bit shorter term as we conclude here, Justin. It's quite cold, but I I think it's going to warm up. What does it look like for the next few days? Uh, Sun and temperatures and so forth?
0: Yep, so uh, a quieter storm track trending towards uh, warmer temperatures. Of course, the snowpack on the ground reflects a lot of that incoming solar radiation. We call it albedo. So that will hold the temperatures down. But as the snow melts... Uh, The the surface is still above freezing. We'll get infiltration, at least in the shallow profiles. Uh, And then looking at the initial December outlooks, we are seeing uh, high probabilities of warmer temperatures on the East Coast and then elevated probabilities of warmer temperatures for the month of December uh, for the state of Iowa. Uh, No real clear signal in terms of precipitation for early December, uh, but it looks like after a very dry start to November, we were, you know, the first 20 days running about 5% of normal precipitation for November, which climatologically is the fourth driest month anyway. Uh, But we've really upped that total uh, with the snowfall that we saw over the weekend and then the rainfall that we had last week. So we're looking like in the top 15 driest Novembers in 151 years of records. So definitely we need precipitation, but I don't see uh, widespread chances of that right now in the outlooks.
1: Justin Glisson, state climatologist of Iowa. Justin, thank you so much.
0: Always a pleasure, Ben.
1: It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Proposed carbon pipelines in the news on a couple of fronts. Let's check in with Jared Strong, senior reporter with Iowa Capital Dispatch. Hello again, Jared.
4: Hey, Ben. Good to be with you.
1: Jared, let's start off with the uh, summit proposal as a whole. It's a five-state pipeline system. Tell us about it quickly.
4: Yeah, no, like you said, uh, it uh, passes through five states, including Iowa, of course. Um, the, its permit process in Iowa has been ongoing for more than two years, and it is getting very close to concluding. Um, it, they wrapped up an evidentiary hearing for the permit um, just earlier this month. And so now um, all the parties involved for and against are to submit uh, sort of their written final arguments um, by the end of uh, December. And then uh, there's a further few weeks for uh, rebuttals to those arguments. And then after that, it's up to the board, uh, to the Iowa Utilities Board, make the decision. And there's no set timeline for that. It's just expected sometime next year.
1: A couple of decisions the Iowa Utilities Board has to make. Tell us about those.
4: Well, I mean, the big one is, does this project uh, serve a public benefit such that it uh, is eligible for eminent domain? Um,
2: Summit has
4: obtained uh, easement agreements with landowners for about three-quarters of its route, so, I mean, 25%. They're looking to take uh, with eminent domain, not actually take the land, but get permission to use the land to install their pipeline and to operate it. And so that's kind of, that's one of the big sticking points. Opponents say that it it does not serve a public benefit. It serves to benefit the wealthy investors of the project. And it's not a cheap project. It's $5.5 billion, they estimate right now. So opponents argue that this is just going to enrich the already rich people who are backing the project. Summit says that you know this is important for the ethanol industry, uh, which essentially has a trickle-down effect and uh, benefits the entire state uh, monetarily because of that.
1: Mm -hmm. You've been watching this, and we've been hearing from you from time to time as the developments occur. You know, there are U.S. Supreme Court watchers who (laughs) follow that process, make educated guesses about how the U.S. Supreme Court will rule based on arguments presented. Do we have any sense, any indication of the likely rule here based on what's transpired?
4: There haven't been a lot of Indicate or there, there have been almost no indications from the board on which way they might go on this. Um, I mean, a, an outside observer might look at it and say, Well, the board has generally ruled favorably uh, towards summit um, along the way, but it, it's, it's very difficult to say. I don't know what, what they're going to decide.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, let's pivot over to the Dakotas. How has this summit proposal been faring there?
4: Well, um, both states, North and South Dakota, uh, rejected the initial proposals by summit. Um, in North Dakota, uh, state regulators have agreed to reconsider the application uh, with modifications, and there's no, uh, there's no time frame for that to complete. There's going to be at least you know, one or two hearings, um, and so you know, we're probably months away from, um, from a decision on that. In South Dakota, uh, Summit has indicated that it will refile its um, application. It hasn't done that yet. That process can, uh, by statute, can take up to a year. So uh, we're waiting, and the company hasn't indicated when they're going to refile yet. So I'm not sure what the timing is going to be.
1: hmm and recently in Illinois, is this tell us is this another different proposal or part of this? The Wolf Carbon Solutions has moved to withdraw its carbon dioxide pipeline permit application.
4: Yeah. So in Iowa, we have three companies that have proposed these pipeline systems: Summit, uh, Navigator CO2, and then Wolf Carbon Solutions. Uh, Summit, Navigators were far are far larger than Wolf's. Um, Navigator ran into trouble uh, in South South Dakota and then also in Illinois and ended up pulling its project. Wolf Carbon Solutions, which has a relatively modest um, amount of pipeline that it wants to lay in Iowa, about 90 miles, next to two ethanol plants in eastern Iowa. uh, They recently uh, withdrew their permit in Illinois um, after... state regulators, staff uh, recommended that uh, the state commission deny the permit um, uh, for a number of reasons, including uh, there's pending revisions to federal regulations. Um, They also have said that state lawmakers intended to use carbon dioxide pipelines to reduce emissions in its coal industry, not to reduce emissions for out-of-state ethanol plants. So, um, it appears that there's, uh, there's a, a, a higher bar to clear in Illinois, uh, but that doesn't affect Summit's project. Summit uh, doesn't stretch into that state and uh, sequesters its, wants to sequester its carbon dioxide up in North Dakota.
1: Jared, it seems like considerable opposition on many fronts to these um, pipeline companies. Would it be conceivable that they just fold up their tents and, and after the investment of all this time and money that they abandon these projects?
4: Well, I mean, they've spent, you know, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars already. Um, and, you know, Navigator did pull the plug on its project. It's hard to say. I mean, it's a it's a waiting game, basically. Pipeline opponents, um, you know, part of their strategy is to delay, 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 so that, you know, investors maybe get skittish and, uh, you know, they decide they don't want to keep spending money not knowing if the project's going to happen. So it's possible. Um, it's It's happened. Uh, It's just nobody knows how long Summit's willing to hold out.
1: Okay, we'll follow this story into 2024, and Jared Strong will no doubt be there to explain it to us as the developments happen. Jared Strong, Senior Reporter with Iowa Capital Dispatch. Thank you, Jared. Thanks, Ben. Coming up after a short break, an Iowa veteran of the Vietnam War shares his memories with IPR's Danny Gere. That's when we return. It's River to River from IPR News.
0: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY
3: and NPR.
1: It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Fifty years ago this past March, the last U.S. troops left Vietnam after years of conflict. The war ended with more than 58,000 U.S. casualties, a total of 3.8 million deaths. It also marked a major shift in American sentiment toward veterans. The celebrations of past returning soldiers was replaced with disdain and sometimes Outright hostility. Tom Johnson of Green, Iowa experienced this when he returned from Vietnam in 1971, but has seen culture shift back in decades since. And today, he proudly wears his Vietnam veteran hat and self published a collection of his war experiences to share with friends and family. IPR producer Danny Gere recently spoke with Johnson about why he wanted to put his war memories down on paper.
3: Well, the kids, you know, they knew that I was in the Army. They knew I was in Vietnam, and they I never talked about it. And they usually didn't ask questions because they knew I wouldn't answer them. And finally, my oldest son was talking to me one day. He says, you know, the only time you ever talk about it is when you're sitting around with some of your old Army buddies or your high school buddies, and you get to drinking some whiskey, then you start talking about it. And he says, why don't you write it down, and that way it's, 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 we know what's going on. Then if you want us to know about it, then we can read the book. And he said, why don't you do that before your mind is completely gone, which was, you know, about seven years ago or six, whatever it was. It actually took about five years to write it.
5: And the and the title sometimes you have to say to hell with it. Where did that come from?
3: I think that's been my attitude all my life. I was always the one that did things, you know, something like jumping off a cliff or you know something like that. <laughs> you know, just I was always willing to do what nobody else wanted to do. I had uh, an attitude that I just wasn't worried. I had no fear. Mm-hmm. I never have had a fear of dying and. I think that actually helped me get through Vietnam. I just you you have to maintain a degree of sharpness. And if you're scared or if you're doped up or something you lose that edge. And you have to have that edge and the only way you get that is to stay the hell with it. You
5: know. So you were drafted in 1969, but that wasn't the first time your name was called in the draft. In 1967, you were called. Tell me a bit about your mother's reaction. What what was happening in your home life at the time?
3: Well, at 67, I graduated from high school and didn't have a clue what to do. You knew the Vietnam War was hot and heavy, and either went to school or got married and had kids or... I, he went to the service. And my father had just died a couple of years before that. I was the last child at home and my brother and sisters all said, well, Tom, you're staying at home. You, you take care of mother. And so I felt committed to her. And after I graduated from school, I didn't have a clue what to do. And I got a draft notice and she asked me, well, why don't you go to college someplace and uh, maybe by the time you go for a couple of years that uh, it'll be over with. But then when I got out in uh, the spring of 69, then I got another draft notice that summer and I told my mother, I said, they want me that bad, that's fine, I'm going to go. And it kind of worked out good because by getting that extra education, I got a better job when I was in Vietnam,
5: leaving your mother behind or leaving her on her own—did that weigh on you while you were while you were away?
3: Uh, I didn't dwell on it, Mister. Yeah, but I—that was not the priority. The priority was to stay alive.
5: So I wanted to talk about that. That first night when you were in Vietnam, they immediately put you on the uh, perimeter guard tower. What was that first night like? Scary.
3: I mean, we landed in Vietnam. You really didn't know what you were going to do. I wasn't, you know, I was trained on the guns. and Didn't have any idea where in Vietnam I would go. I didn't have a clue what I would be doing. Uh, we landed about 12 o'clock on Christmas Day, and uh, we got fed a halfway decent meal, and we were just taking a nap. Later that afternoon, they came around and said, well, we need people for guard towers, and they didn't ask. They just, you, 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 come with me and issued another another, uh, M60 machine gun, and I and another fellow went out to the took us out to the guard tower and said, you have two orders. Stay awake all night. Kill anything that gets in front of you. And Fortunately, there was a truce on until midnight because of Christmas, but the Vietnamese did not adhere to the Geneva Conference or to holidays. They didn't care. So, But it was quiet, so that was one good thing about it. But, yeah, we stayed awake all night. Welcome to Vietnam. <laughs> Merry Christmas, by the way.
5: <laughs> um, you write in your book about the Greenies, Um Explain, explain what that term meant.
3: When you first get to Vietnam, if you look at some of my pictures, you'll see a picture of me the first month I was there. And you have nice, clean, green uniforms on. They're OD green, but they're bright green. Vietnam, they don't have black dirt. They don't have bright. They're kind of a brownish-red dirt. After a month or two, probably two months, they'd lose their bright greenness. You would look brown, you know, kind of a brownish green, a drab green. Well, so you knew the difference between the guys that first got there because their clothes were brighter. We called them greenies.
5: And what was was the attitude toward those new arrivals?
3: The new arrivals were the ones that got killed first. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, they weren't... They were trained, but they were not smart. They weren't battle smart. Uh, hard to tell you what the difference is, other than it's just you don't have the keenness, and so you kind of stay away from them, because they may do something you think is stupid, or maybe they're too noisy, or maybe they light up a cigarette when they shouldn't, or something like that. You know, they, they're, they're not hardcore veterans yet
5: now as you would expect from an account of war uh, it is a, this your writing is graphic what was it like having to not only bring back those memories in your own mind but to to put them in writing
3: It's hard to do this is hard to do. And, yeah, it's it's difficult, but then to try to, you know, you don't want to ignore it all your life either. you got to let people know. And especially nowadays, you know, they, you see even like the Rambo movies and stuff like that. And, you know, if your grandkids or your kids see that, they think that's the way it is. It's glorified. War is not glorified. It's ugly. Uh, It's not nice at all. And young people need to know that. I don't care if they're 10 years old or 20 years old. They need to know that. It's not pretty. And pretty things don't happen there. And I've been hoping that other veterans will come forward. Get it out of your system. Talk about it. You bottle up in your head, you're going to explode.
5: And you mentioned that a main uh, motivator to writing this was because of your children. Um, you also don't hold back when you, when you wrote this down. You, you write about prostitution and drug use, which uh, most war accounts do. Um, what, what, were you concerned about your children reading that, or were you were you ready to be open about every aspect of your experience? Well,
3: all of my children are older than 18, and I have copies for all of the grandkids, and I tell their parents, it's your discretion as to when they can read this, because I don't think it's meant for a 15-year-old or a 10-year-old. No, it's not. But it depends upon the parents. I mean, you can only hide so much from a ten year old kid or a twelve year old or a fifteen year old so there's no sense writing two different two separate books, one good book and one truthful book. I mean tell it like it is if you don't and I've put that in my book, you don't like it, don't read it
5: and that that leads into another question because, as you mentioned in your foreword, you say. If this offends you, don't read it. Uh, and there are parts in the book that, by 2023 standards, people, people will find it offensive, um, certain terminology. Why did you decide to use terminology that would possibly offend people today?
3: I used a terminology that I was familiar with.
5: When you returned to the U.S., what what did you experience as far as your your reception upon returning?
3: We flew into Fort Lewis, Washington. It's up by Seattle, and well, first thing you do is take a good hot shower and get some clean clothes on, and. Uh, Get your dress greens and a light jacket, pair of shoes, got your pay, you got some food in you. This takes, oh, I don't know, three or four days. And then they put you on a bus, and they'll take you either to an airport, train station, bus depot, you're on your own. I had enough money, say, back or coming, where I was able to go to the airport, got a plane ticket, called my mother, and she went to Minneapolis to where my brother lived, and they were going to pick me up from the airport because I told them what flight. And got on the plane, and there was, like I said in my book, there's only about a half full. There wasn't very many people on the plane, and there was about eight stewardesses on there. And I kind of sat all towards the back a little bit, and they were kind of maybe more towards the middle, not too far back, I don't know. But uh, they wouldn't come near me. Uh, They didn't offer me anything, you know, water, tea, or beer, or anything, any snack, or wouldn't talk to me. Just completely ignored me. I I don't care. Got to Minneapolis. My brother was there, and picked me up. This is in March. I'm used to weather that's 110, 120, 130 degrees. I get to March in Minneapolis. All I had on was a light jacket. I was cold, (laughs) but it felt good to be home. I mean, at least the family was receptive. Uh, Once you get home, your friends, your family is happy to see you, but there's no parades. There's no welcome wagon. There's no no appreciation. So you go about your way.
5: Being able to be authentic about your experience in Vietnam, how does how does that feel?
3: It's all right. I don't know. Some of it I'm not real proud of, but I guess I did what I did. You know, you you do what you got to do to stay alive. You do what you do to keep others alive.
5: You wrote in your foreword, I still have the dreams and the ghosts, but not as often. Can you expand on that a bit? How? No. I understand. No worries.
3: Let's just say because of my medication I take, I think, for my heart, and for my arthritis, it's dulled the brain quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And in the last several years, I haven't had the nightmares. So that's a, a blessing.
5: What uh, long-term health impacts do you have because of your service?
3: I'm dying. I have coronary artery disease. There's no cure. There's no fix.
5: In that... Uh, you wrote was tied to Agent Orange. Yeah. You also wrote um, tied more to your return. You said there wasn't a parade, just another soldier home from a worthless war that we were not allowed to win and didn't.
3: What, absolutely right.
5: What do you mean, you by, mean
3: that? by that? Well, well, we had the firepower. We had air supremacy. We had sea supremacy. We had land supremacy. They wouldn't let us use it. They wouldn't let us win. It was just a political war. You know, I just, they, when you got that much firepower, it could have been over in a heartbeat, but they, they wouldn't let us win. We never did win. We got our butts kicked.
5: And how does that affect how you reflect on your service?
3: Makes you wonder why you went through it. <laughs> Mainly because I didn't want to go to jail. <laughs> well, that was your option. If you didn't go, you went to jail. I mean, uh, yeah, you know, I'm proud that I served my country, but it just, you know, you look at these guys that fought World War II. In the long run, they won. You know, you... you War is weird because you never win totally. I mean, you, you lose, 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 but at least there was more of a winning note than what we had in Vietnam, you know.
1: That was Tom Johnson, a Vietnam War veteran from Green, Iowa. He talked with IPR producer Danny Gere. Today's program produced by Samantha McIntosh, Catherine Perkins, and Danny Gere. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.